Good morning. Before I get started with the message today, um, we wanted to make sure that we take the office, this opportunity to pray over all the shoe boxes that you guys packed. We met our goal. We covered Bill, as you saw in the picture. So awesome job with that. Um, so I'm going to ask if you guys could all stand up and move towards one of the boxes that's on the end of the pews and um, place your hands on it if you can. And we're going to pray over them as they're going to be sent out tomorrow. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you um, just for this morning that we can come together and worship you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for everyone here um, who took the time to pack a shoebox for a child in need, Lord. Lord, as I, pr I pray that as these are um, packed up and sent off, um, we just want to pray a blessing over them, God, that you um, and your spirit can just work and guide and impact the lives of the kids that are going to be receiving these, Lord. I pray for the volunteers that are giving their time to get these packed up and shipped and delivered, Lord, I pray that you can just bless them. Lord, I pray that you're with the people who will be the ones delivering these boxes to the kids in need, Lord. I pray that they can be a light for you, that they can just make an impact into the communities that they reach, Lord, into the families and the, the kids there. And I pray that as these kids receive these boxes, that, um, that yes, they can receive some awesome toys and things like that, but more importantly, that they can come to know you, Lord, and come to have faith in you, that um, just through our little gifts, God, that you can work miracles and transform lives. So, Lord, I pray that as these go out, that you, and you can just work through everyone that's participated in it, Lord, and that your kingdom can just grow through this opportunity. We thank you for your grace and just that we can share that grace with so many around the world. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and make your way back to your seats, please. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. Luke chapter 5, if you go ahead and open up your Bibles there. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you that you can grab. So Luke chapter 5, verse 27 is where we're going to be starting today. And I'll read the passage for us, and then we'll pray and we'll dive into it. So Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 27, it says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him and his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word that we can just be blessed to have this, God. Lord, I pray for our hearts and our minds and our ears that they can just be open to your word and what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray. Um, that you can just speak to us through this message today, that you can convict us of what we need to be convicted, and that you can just lead us to repentance, to better seek and follow you, to imitate you and share your love with others. God, I pray that you can just bless this day. 
and that we can just have an awesome time diving into your word. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so as we come to our passage this morning, it's important to note what Luke had covered up to this point uh, in, towards the end of chapter 5. Back towards the end of chapter 4, Jesus was meeting with and was healing the demon-possessed, the sick, and the diseased. And then coming into chapter 5, Jesus called a few fishermen as his first disciples to follow him and be fishers of men. And after calling Peter, James, and John, Jesus encounters a man with a severe skin disease, and Jesus actually touches him and heals him. And this was completely against Jewish culture, Jewish tradition, because touching someone with a disease like that would make you unclean. And so Jesus, we see Jesus all throughout here. He's starting to challenge the norm of what Jewish culture was all about. And just before our passage, we see that Luke writes about a group of friends who carried their paralyzed friend on a mat to Jesus. And they tried getting him into the house that Jesus was in, but the house was so packed that they actually had to lower him through the roof on the mat. And so the, man, the paralyzed man, he gets to Jesus, and Jesus forgives him of his sin, and he heals him so he's no longer paralyzed, and he walks out of the house. In all of these different interactions Jesus has had leading up to our passage today, we see that Jesus, God in the flesh, spent a lot of time with the outcasts of society, with those that the religious elite wouldn't go near, whether it was because they were social outcasts or sick or even demon-possessed. And Luke wanted to communicate to his readers that Jesus was a man on a mission. And up until this point, Jesus was living out his mission. And in our passage today, we see Jesus states it clearly in verse 32 of chapter 5, that I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus' call to Levi. And in our text today, it says Levi, but this is the disciple Matthew. If you go to Matthew's account, he refers to himself as Matthew, but this was his name pre-following Christ, Levi. So I'm going to be saying Matthew a lot, but the text will say Levi, just to make that clear. So we're going to be looking at his account. This is where Matthew's story begins and how we as sinners should respond to Jesus' call as well and carry out his mission as his followers. So the first thing we see in Jesus' call to Matthew is that the only qualification to follow Christ is to be a sinner in need of grace. The only thing required to follow Christ is to be a sinner in need of grace. Look at Luke 5, 27 with me. It says, after this, after Jesus had healed the paralyzed man, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, Matthew, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. See, back then, a rabbi or a teacher would call certain people to follow them and to learn from them in their teachings. Now, typically, a rabbi would call someone who's got lots of education, he's got good character, and he has a potential future, and they wanted those people to follow them because they wanted to have the best students. But with Jesus, the only qualification needed to follow him was to be a sinner in need of grace. And this is clearly seen in the first disciples he chooses to follow him. No typical rabbi would have called three fishermen, let alone a tax collector, to be his disciples or his students. 
They had obviously not made it far in their education as young little Jewish boys, and so they found other careers to pursue, to make money. And to make it clear, a tax collector was the last person a rabbi would call to follow them. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low in terms of social status. They served as an example of the worst sinners in Jesus' time, which is why we see the authors of the Gospels, they always lump tax collectors and sinners as a phrase together. That's how they describe tax collectors. Now, tax collectors, they were hated so much because they were employees of the Roman Empire, which was ruling over the Jewish people. And so their neighbors viewed them as traitors. It'd be like your own neighbor working for a country that had taken over the U.S. You would not like them. So Rome would sell these tax franchises to the highest local bidder and then collect a certain amount of money from the tax collectors. But after that, the tax collectors, they could keep the rest of whatever they had collected. So tax collectors, they would become filled with greed and enforce taxes on anything and everything they could think of just so that they could collect as much money as possible and keep for themselves. Because once they hit that threshold of what they needed to give to Rome, the rest was theirs. And so they could tax anything they could imagine and collect money for that, and it was theirs. I mean, imagine your neighbor being a local tax collector. No one likes a person who, one, works for the enemy, and two, takes all your money. You would have no respect for them. You'd be talking behind their backs as to how greedy, heartless, and conniving they are. You would avoid this person at all costs because they were truly the lowest of the low. But Jesus walks right up to Matthew and tells him, follow me. I mean, imagine being Matthew at that moment. You've heard of this man named Jesus being in your region, and he's teaching, and he's healing, and performing all kinds of crazy miracles. He's earned a reputation as a great prophet, and some are even starting to say he might be the Messiah, Israel's promised one to get them out of captivity. And then you hear a crowd heading towards you on the road one day as you're sitting in your tax booth at work. And then you realize that crowd is getting louder and louder and louder as it's coming towards you. And so as this crowd's getting louder and louder and you're sitting in your tax booth, you start to slink back a little bit and avert your eyes towards the ground so you don't have to make eye contact with any of your angry neighbors as this crowd walks by. But then you notice that the noise isn't fading away, that this crowd won't leave from right in front of your little tax booth. And so you look up, and you see Jesus himself staring at you. And so your heart drops to your stomach, and you immediately expect this harsh rebuke to come from this great and powerful man. And so you begin to tense up as you see he's actually about to speak to you. And then Jesus says, follow me. Matthew must have had the wind knocked out of him hearing that. Jesus was calling a man that was hated by everyone and at the bottom of society to follow him. Because the only qualification to follow Christ is to be a sinner in need of grace. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus knew Matthew's heart 
He knew that Matthew was convicted of his sin and lost without hope in God. So Jesus tells Matthew to follow him. We are all in Matthew's shoes. We are all sinners in need of grace. With God himself coming to seek and to save us. And Matthew's story shows us there is no one who is too far from God's grace. God is calling everyone to follow him. Regardless of your past, for God forgives even the worst of sinners. So how have we or how should we respond to this call? This takes us to the second thing we see in Jesus' call to Matthew. That a true follower leaves everything to follow Christ. A true follower leaves everything to follow Christ. Read Luke 5.28 with me. It says, So, leaving everything behind, Matthew got up and began to follow him. Matthew left everything. His job wasn't something that he could just come back to when he pleased. Something about Jesus compelled Matthew to lay it all down, to put his faith in him and to follow him. Earlier in Luke 5, we see that Peter, James, and John, they dropped their nets to go follow Jesus as well. With Matthew, though, there was no picking up the business later. His job would just be filled in with another tax collector in a day or two. Whereas the fishermen, they could go and pick up their nets again and start fishing, which they actually did once Jesus was crucified. Matthew was all in, putting total faith in Christ for all his needs. Jesus' call to follow changed Matthew's life forever. His greedy and selfish old life was now behind him, and a new life following Christ was beginning. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Matthew serves as a perfect example of what this verse says. Matthew no longer desired wealth and worldly treasures. He wasn't a greedy tax collector anymore. He was a new man who desired Christ above everything. A good contrast to Matthew's story, though, is the story of the rich young ruler. So turn to Mark chapter 10 with me, and we'll look at his story. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. It says, As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but the one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Not everyone that Christ called to follow him was willing to leave everything behind. This young man's heart in Mark 10 was clinging on to his wealth and his possessions. Jesus tells the young man to sell all that he had, 
Because Jesus knew what this young man treasured above all else, his own wealth. And we have had or still have things that get in our way of following Christ. Whether it's money or status, a career or alcohol, following your friends or valuing your boyfriend or girlfriend above all, or your own pride or addictions, we've all had things that we wrapped our hearts around rather than God himself. But look at how Jesus addressed the young man in verse 21. It says, then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus loved that young man and knew what he cared about most. This wasn't Jesus angrily rebuking him. It was Jesus caring for the man's soul, knowing that valuing his possessions above all else would only lead to his misery and to life without God. So Jesus tells him to sell all he has so that he may follow him and have treasure in heaven. Unfortunately, though, this young man was unlike Matthew. He was unwilling to let go of his wealth in order to follow Jesus. So what do we need to let go of that's hindering us from following Christ? Jesus says in Mark 8, 34 through 36, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his, loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? Jesus calls us to let go of our old selves and what we desired most. Because if you value anything above Christ and his saving grace, you cannot truly follow him. You cannot truly follow him. This leads us to the third thing we see in Jesus' call to Matthew. A genuine response to salvation is a desire to make Christ known. A genuine response to salvation is a desire to make Christ known. Turn back to Luke 5 with me. In verse 29, it says, Then Levi, Matthew, hosted a grand banquet for Jesus at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. So what's the next thing Matthew does? Jesus calls him to follow him. He leaves his job and everything behind. And then what does he do? He throws a party for Jesus and invites all of his friends. And banquets and parties back then, they were actually a really big deal. You'd really only throw one party a year and you would use it as a way to invite all the cool people so you could boost up your own social status. So for Matthew to throw this party, typically we'd see him inviting all of like the religious leaders and the elite and the wealthy of the class. But who do we see Matthew actually invites as his guest to this party? Does he invite the prominent people in society? Does he invite the religious elite and the wealthy? Nope. Matthew, in his own account in Matthew 9.10, says he invites sinners and tax collectors. See, Matthew didn't care about trying to boost his social status with Jesus. Rather, he cared about his fellow tax collectors and sinners, wanting them to meet Jesus too. Matthew understood what Jesus' mission was, and wanted to take part in it as well. He wanted all of his friends and his associates to know and follow Jesus because Matthew understood that Jesus 
was the one that all should put their faith in. And Paul speaks about having this mindset in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. If you want to turn there with me real quick. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 31. Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul and Matthew both desire to bring God glory in all they do, to make him known to others because of the love that God first showed them. This means they do things not for their own profit, but for the profit of many so that they may be saved. Paul and Matthew, they do this because they have a desire to imitate Christ and his love and grace so that others may come to know Christ, put their faith in him, and be saved. Matthew shows a genuine response to salvation by his desire to make Jesus known to everyone he knows. Now this begs the question of our response to salvation. Are we inviting others to Christ? Do we do as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10.33 to try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved? To put it bluntly, how good can the gospel, which means good news, how good can the gospel be if we're not sharing it? What is our genuine response to salvation? Perhaps we've been in the church for a while and find it hard to relate to the outsiders or the sinners of our day. Have we started becoming more like the Pharisees, choosing not to associate with sinners? The fourth thing we see in Jesus' is call to Matthew is that, the blind, that blindness is caused by pride and self-righteousness. Blindness caused by pride and self-righteousness. Turn back to Luke 5 again. Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. It says, But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples while they were at this party. Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they imagined themselves to be the religious elite, and their society treated them as such as well. They wouldn't dare go into Matthew's banquet and risk becoming unclean by associating with these tax collectors and sinners. So instead, they keep themselves separate from the partygoers, thinking that they know what's best and what God requires of them. And not only do they keep themselves separate, but they complain to the disciples, asking, how could they engage so personally with sinners and tax collectors by sharing a meal with them? What we learn about the Pharisees here is that their question reveals just how proud they are, just how focused on the external and the outwardly moral characteristics while being completely empty of grace. Because we got to compare this with, to what Jesus has been doing this whole time. He's been spending the majority of his time with the unclean and the sinners and is now currently inside Matthew's house sharing a meal with them, bonding with these people. There was no inner heart change within these Pharisees. 
They were not repentant sinners in need of grace. What the Pharisees failed to see is that the law that they were so good at following was not a means to attain righteousness. The law that they were so, quote-unquote, good at following was not a means to attain righteousness. Instead of realizing their failure to obey the law and then repenting of their sin, they instead saw it as a way to boast in themselves and of their good works because they thought they were the best at keeping the law. They, ca- they became blind to their own inability to follow the law, thinking they were the best at following it and therefore the greatest of the Jews. But in reality, the law's main purpose was to expose us to just how sinful we are. The law's main purpose is to expose us to just how sinful we are. Turn to Romans chapter 3 with me. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul's speaking and he says, What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Listen to verse 20 here. For no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. No one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Knowledge of sin comes through the law. Paul's making it very, very, very clear to his audience here that there is no one who is righteous. Not even one. He goes on to say in verse 23, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says in verse 20 that no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law because it's through the law that comes knowledge of sin. When we try to follow the law, we realize how messed up we really are because we can't follow the law. And what's ironic about this passage that Paul is quoting tons of Old Testament scriptures in verses 10 through 18. And the Pharisees and the scribes that were complaining to Jesus and his disciples at this party, they would have known these verses. And yet we are see they are blind to them because of their pride. The whole Old Testament that they had studied and memorized, they are blind. They foolishly believed that they are righteous, especially in comparison to Matthew's guests. And so they would dare not associate with them. Now, this takes me back to the question that I asked earlier. Have we, have I, have you, have we become like Pharisees, unwilling to associate with social outcasts, the unclean, and sinners? As I've been preparing this week, I've been consistently asking myself, would I be looking in from the outside, judging all those sinners at the party, 
or would I actually desire to go in and get to know them and associate with them? It's easy for me to say what I would want to do because I don't actually have to back it up with anything, right? But if I actually look back over the past weeks, months, years, whatever it may be, what have my actions truly shown? What have your actions truly shown? Have we been pridefully putting ourselves above others and ignoring, avoiding, or even condemning modern-day sinners? What really hit at home was Jesus' response to these Pharisees, which takes us to the final thing we see in Jesus' call to Matthew, that Jesus is the great physician whose mission is to call sinners to repentance. Jesus is the great physician whose mission is to call sinners to repentance. Turn back to Luke 5 one last time, verses 31 and 32. It says, Jesus replied to them, The healthy do not need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, although the Pharisees were complaining to Jesus' disciples, Jesus takes the opportunity to respond to the Pharisees because Jesus knew what was going on. And so he starts with this simple metaphor that everyone would agree with, that only the sick people go to a doctor. Only sick people need a doctor. Everyone agrees with that. Pharisees agree with it. Sinners agree with it. Jesus agrees with it. So they're all on the same playing field. But then he takes that same metaphor and its three characters and uses it to describe the three different types of people that were in their current situation. He begins by connecting himself with the doctor, saying, I, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And from their current situation, we can easily deduce that the healthy and righteous that he refers to are the scribes and the Pharisees who believe themselves to be righteous, but in reality are blind to their sin, which leaves the sick to be the sinners who know they are in need of grace and repentance. So Jesus answers the Pharisees' complaint with something that they could not deny. The social outcasts, the sick, the diseased, the demon-possessed, and even the tax collectors, they were all sick and in need of a doctor. There was no arguing that. The Pharisees saw that. So Jesus exposes how cold and hard-hearted these Pharisees are to those who were spiritually sick. Because shouldn't these religious men, these leaders in their society, be the ones aiding the sick and sinful people. They're the ones who, quote-unquote, had it all together, who knew God's word, and yet they banished those people. They never associated with those people. While Jesus, the great physician, is spending most of his time with them and is healing them and caring for them and leading them to faith in him. Not only does Jesus expose the Pharisees' hard-heartedness, but he also presents the fact that those who view themselves as healthy and righteous, they cannot be saved by God because they don't see the need to go to the doctor. Only those who understand that they are sinful and in need of Christ can be saved. Because if you don't see yourself as a sinner, you don't see any reason to be saved. So Jesus states his mission that he's been living out with all that he encounters, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He is the great physician that offers us a cure. 
He's, his death on the cross and his resurrection paid the price for everyone who believes and follows him, giving us all new and eternal life with him as he conquered sin and death once and for all. And what a great way to think of repentance, too, with this little metaphor. One author explained it this way. Here Jesus offers a true picture of repentance. It's like going to a doctor for help. The cure, if it is to come, must come from outside of oneself. A repentant heart is open to God and to his administering the necessary medicine for life. And God graciously gives this medicine to those who seek forgiveness through him. Repentance is like knowing you're sick and going to the doctor. For anyone here who knows they're a sinner and in need of repentance, I urge you to repent, to turn from yourself and to come to God seeking his forgiveness and putting your faith in him and following him from this day forward. And for those of us who do profess faith in Christ as our great physician, I want to return to the question I mentioned earlier. Have we, have I, have you become like Pharisees, unwilling to associate with the social outcasts, the unclean, and the sinners? Matthew and Paul, they both understood what it meant to imitate Christ, to continue his mission of calling sinners to repentance. But have we gotten too comfortable just coming to church each Sunday, hearing the word preached, and then going home without actually submitting and willing to change to better imitate Christ? Do we just come to church each Sunday, hear the word, and then go home without actually humbling ourselves and be willing to change and submit? to better imitate Christ. See, we're called just as Peter, Paul, and Matthew were to follow Christ and to imitate him. That means we associate with the social outcasts, the unclean and the sinners. But we're not doing this to try and earn any part of God's love and forgiveness. I just want to make that clear, that there's nothing we can do to earn God's forgiveness. That's why it's called grace. God's grace is given to us freely because it's something we could never earn. We just do this as a response to God's grace. Because God first loved us, so we want to go and love others. And we want to imitate him as he did that. So ask yourself, who am I going to? Who am I ignoring or disregarding or shunning or even condemning? Do people know me as a friend of sinners, like Jesus was referred to as? We need to humble ourselves before God and repent of any hard-heartedness so that we, the church, me, you, all of us, we can truly serve as the body of Christ and continue his mission of bringing the good news to all, not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Let's stand up and pray together. God, I thank you for your word and just the truth that it speaks into our lives, God. The truth of who you are and the truth of who we are. We are sinners in need of grace, and you are the great physician, healing us of our sin and sickness. Lord, I pray that as we just 
chew on what you, what you say through your word, that you can just be working on our hearts, convicting us of where um, our hearts have been hardened and softening them so that we can better imitate you and love even the least of these. God, I pray that your love can just transform us, that we truly are new creations in you. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. God, I pray that as we go about this week, you can just be leading us to associate with those who we have been ignoring or even condemning because you weren't afraid to do that, God. And you go out with us. Your spirit is with us, leading us, Lord. So I pray that we are listening to your spirit. We're humbling ourselves and following you in your footsteps. I pray that um, if we need to repent of anything, Lord, that we do that, that we just come before you, the loving, gracious God, and repent and just seek you in your kingdom. I thank you for your word in this morning that we could just come together and worship you and praise you. And I pray that we can just have a blessed rest of this week. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so now is our time to respond. If you wanna sing a song, sing along with Dane. If you wanna come and pray with me, you can pray with me. If you wanna pray where you're at, 